Welcome back, everybody. This is a special episode of the Voices from the Northeast podcast. In this episode, well, actually, it is such a special episode that I've had to bring in a co-host for this. Okay, so I've had to bring in um, a specialist because we're going to talk in this episode to the author L.J. Ross. It's a, it's a fantastic treat. Um, but because we're talking to an author, I needed a specialist in English, um, someone who specializes in words. Um, so sat opposite me right now is um, the incredibly intelligent uh, English teacher and um, English graduate, Justine, my wife. How big a deal was this, love? It was a very exciting opportunity because she's one of my absolute favorite authors. And it's even more special because she's so local and she's played a bit of a part of our own story. Um, and where we are in our lives now. So it was fantastic that she was willing to give us our time and she was so gracious and so enthusiastic about it. So yeah, very exciting. It was. We, we got to meet her in November? December. December. We met her in December at the uh, Newcastle Noir Literature, uh, literacy, uh, literature, I was going to say literacy, that's the school teacher in me there. Literature. Literature <laughs> event um, at the big uh, Newcastle Library in Newcastle. Went with mum and dad and um, and she was so easy to talk to. We, we listened to her on the stage and she was fantastic. And then we got to talk to her a little bit when we were getting a book signed. And, uh, and then I spoke to her via Instagram mm-hmm. and she said she would love to come on the podcast and talk about how she's used social history to set up the backgrounds of various characters in her story, but also how the sheer landscape and the dramatic landscape of Northumberland features so heavily in her stories. Um, So do you have a question that you got to ask her or a special standout moment from the podcast interview that people are about to hear that was like a real, oh, that's a cracking moment Well, if anybody is familiar with LJ Ross, if they have seen her at any kind of event where she has spoken to an audience, they'll know she's very softly spoken. I think one of the standout moments of the interview was hearing such an eloquent, softly spoken woman say Raji with (laughs) such vigour and enthusiasm. For me, it was um, was when she talks about asking people down south if if they've got a netty. I think that's great. You're going to get a kick out of that when you hear it. Um, Right. So without further ado, then we will start the episode. Uh, James, play the theme tune. Welcome everybody to the Voices from the No Face podcast. Morning, podcasters. You know, I was born in North Seaton Colliery. When I I were a lad. I should have remembered that because my mother used to work for them. I'm champion for me, absolutely fine. And who doesn't make the selection box for breakfast? Hey, that was Christmas. Yeah. yeah. I can she went flying over me pole in Chibustale. listeners that haven't read your books would you like to just introduce sort of the 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 themes of the books as you see it and um and mm-hmm. the settings for them you know why why northumberland sure well thanks um so obviously i'm louise um but i write as lj ross um a lot of people i think over the years have wondered about that moniker and um you know there's a, an idea i think amongst crime fiction writers that you should appear unisex but that's not the reason at all actually um j stands for james which is my husband um and it was deliberately chosen as a kind of permanent thank you because back when i was first starting out you know he was the one who really encouraged me to go for it and 
you know, give it a give it a give it a try. So yeah, it's it's a permanent thank you to him really for all of his encouragement. Um, so yeah, my books. I I mean, I actually write three series. Um, two of the newer ones aren't set around the northeast. One of them is a summer suspense series, and another one is a series about a criminal profiler uh, called Dr. Gregory, who is international. But the main series that I write is, of course, based around our lovely northeast, and that's the TCI Ryan series. Um, there are nineteen books now. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I've written 25 in total but 19 in that series um, and the first one was of course famously Holy Island um, and most recently Bamber. I kind of um, I very much take my inspiration from the landscape I think that's probably the key point for me um, landscape history um, feel for the places that I've been um, obviously for me the northeast is home so I was born and bred there um, up towards Pontinland, actually. So we used to go to places like Cragside and, and Bamborough and Wallington Hall and all of these different places so frequently, Bowlam Lake, um, oh. Kielder, you know, all of these places uh, were regular weekend haunts for me. Um, so, you know, when it came to thinking about writing what you know, which is the advice they give writers, you know, when you're mm. first starting out, write about what you know. And I think that's always quite funny because obviously in crime fiction writing, one would hope that you're not really writing about what you know. Um, but, but at least, you know, or am I? <laughs> at least, yeah. but at least. Stay tuned. Um, I know. Yeah, this is an expose. Um, but, but at least, uh, you know, on the, on the landscapes, I can, you know, certainly write a little bit about what I know there. I mean, what I would say is about each book, um, you know, when you think about a story arc from beginning to end, you know, in a crime fiction novel, um, although I should pause there and say really with my books, I kind of categorize them as being relationship dramas with crimes sprinkled on top because one of the main things aside from the locations that readers seem to say that they love is very much the characters and their lives Absolutely. and their stories. I, yeah. I hear a lot about people saying that they're like friends now, which makes me so happy because, <laughs> you know, when I, when I pick up a story again, you know, when I come to write a new one, it is like revisiting friends for me as well, which is such a weird thing to think about, but it's true. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's really, really nice to have been able to convey a bit of that. Um, but aside from that, you know, I look at it and I think, well, over the arc of a story, um, you need to have ups and downs to keep the pace flowing. Um, I, I use an internal bar. I mean, I know that some writers use fancy software like Scrivener where, you know, you can track things mm. like pacing. Um, <clears throat> but for me, I really just go by my gut. And to be quite honest, if I'm writing something and I start to feel bored, then that's probably a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I just I just follow my instinct on that. Um, but over the course of one story, you know, you have your, your ups and your downs in terms of uh, pacing and you kind of have an ebb and flow. So over a long running series, I would say that it's more or less the same, because if I've written what I would describe as a really high octane book, for example, book five, High Force, mm. set, of course, at the Beautiful Waterfall was one of my um, favorites. One, uh, well, thank you. But it's kind <laughs> of a, it's one long manhunt, you know. Yes. So much more action filled than some of the others. Whereas if you compare that with, say, something like Sycamore Gap as a slightly slower mm. pace. But I think that, um, you know, likewise, more recently, The Rock was grittier in tone. Um, mm. And so fo followed up by Bambra, 
which is slightly cozier in feel if you discount the serial killing element. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, so, you know, I like to, I like to keep that ebb and flow ups and downs, you know, um, another good example of that is Cragside followed immediately after High Force. So High Force was high octane and then Cragside was very much more of a kind of uh, locked room, old style mystery, um, being yes. of course mostly set in and around Cragside. Mm-hmm. And that was very deliberate because I think that if you just keep writing the same thing over and over, I mean, you as a writer, I mean, I would, I would become quite creatively stagnant with that um but i think also as a readership i think it's important to explore different kind of journeys for the characters in every book you know so um so that's kind of how i would describe the run of the series everyone is ever so slightly different and they're all based in and around the northeast in different beautiful settings really so um and i mean in each one i try to focus on um you know, a theme or a concept or, you know, because it varies, say, Penshaw is obviously famously surrounded by um, the history of the minor strike in the 1980s um, and the impact still on the present day. So that's quite strong on social history. Well, um, yeah, I did. I did want to ask about Penshaw, actually. That was mm-hmm. um, so that that features obviously the, the 84 minor strike, mm-hmm. which is a really... Yeah is a really difficult topic to bring up in conversation, let, let alone write about in a book in the Northeast. Yeah. I know when, yeah. when we've covered it on the podcast, I, I've done one episode where we talked about a, a snowball fight between um, the local police and the local strike. Um, and, and it was a good humoured one. It was a good humoured snowball yeah. fight. Um, <laughs> but I remember at the end, my mom saying to me, you need to kind of just put that in the historical context of how actually really difficult a time that was. So I wondered, yeah. you know, did you give extra thought to including that in the book when you're touching on a subject that's quite, even though it's a long time ago, 84, it's still quite raw for people in the North? Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that when you're, <clears throat> when you're writing a book that is, um, you know, say Holy Island, the first book, um, mm. you're then focusing strongly on location um, and, you know, you're wanting to be true to the island as far as possible, albeit within the bounds of fiction. Um, but when you've got a book like Penchel, where you are deliberately touching on real historic facts, um, you're blurring the boundary between fiction and nonfiction. So, yes, you have to be very, very careful with things like that. The Rock is another good example because of sex trafficking in that yes. um, and and you know say with the rock i mean i actually worked as a research assistant um many many years ago at university where the whole project was about trafficking um so my knowledge was fairly well established and um, so i felt that you know at least on the legal side the social uh social policy side of things i was fairly um aware of what had been out there. And it was just a case of bringing my knowledge up to date. In terms of Penshaw, it really was a case of being very careful with both my private research, but also speaking to a lot of people, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think what's interesting is, um, you know, when I'm writing a story, what I try to always make clear to readers, and I think the majority of them really understand this, which I'm very lucky about with my readership, they're wonderful, um, is that when I'm writing a character, I'm writing it through the prism of the character's view of the world, you know? So mm-hmm. when I'm writing characters in Penshaw who have lived in and around um, a former mining village, then I am writing from the prism of their understanding. Um, 
<clears throat> you know, I'm not writing. If I was writing a character of a conservative politician at the time, mm-hmm. then obviously yes. it would be very, very different, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. So, you know, and I think that also there's a there's a sense by which having a large readership, as I do, where, you know, they're based around the world, you want to feel that you're doing justice to the thoughts, the feelings, the, the emotions, and also the social history of the area for the benefit of people who really didn't live through that and didn't know. Um, I should also point out, out as well that, you know, obviously I didn't live through that personally myself either, but I do have a father who grew up in a pit village. I do know a lot of people and I'm able to go out there and really research as much as I can. Um, yeah, I, and so I, that's I, how, that's how you approach it really. Yeah, I, I just, I'm remembering what my, my dad, had, my dad uh, lived through that and, uh, and um well, we had uh, family involved in the strikes on on two different sides mm-hmm. of it in some cases, and um, yeah. he said actually when you read Penshaw, you could replace Penshaw with any mining mm-hmm. village in the north. He really felt that that was quite real, even in the smaller oh. sections of it. He said actually that was really a very neat and tidy way of capturing the emotion that some of those people felt at that time and how difficult it was. Yeah, oh, well, I'm I'm glad that you know I was able to do that. That's great to hear. Um, you know, and I, I think that it's important as well, isn't it? Because even nowadays, when people think about these moments in history, it seems like such a long time ago. But, um, you know, for example, we do a lot of philanthropy work through my publishing house now. And one of the things that we do is work with uh, Greg's um, breakfast clubs. And through them and the work that they do, um, we've been working with some schools who, you know, have desperately needed the help mm-hmm. um, to feed the children. And a lot of those are ex-mining villages, third, fourth generation unemployment. And, you know, really it's about not forgetting what might be on our doorsteps, you know, and kind of having compassion for that. Um, so, yeah, that was that was why I, I just felt it was important to talk about it. So for the listeners who aren't as familiar with your books as we are, the character of DCI Ryan is not local to the Northeast. And what mm-hmm. I've noticed thinking about the um, series as a whole is that Ryan's lack of local knowledge, I guess, is very much used to tell the social history. So you've got the character of Phillips who talks Ryan through um, you know, serious events such as the minor strikes or the shipping yard explosion that you um, explore in Cragside. Is that yeah. deliberate that you use him as an outsider? Definitely. Um, you know, I think in terms of, you know, just when you're writing any character, how they're developed is really through conversations with other characters. It's not really, they don't ever do a monologue and say, I am a kind-hearted individual who, you know, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely the case that, you know, you draw people out through their interactions with other characters on the pages and, and through the kind of action that happens. Um, and it's a really neat tool. I mean, the reason I um, decided that he needed to come from the South and have chosen to move North was that at the time of writing Hoodie Island, I'd just resigned my position as a lawyer, having lived in London for 12 years. And while I was in London, you know, it's it's a classic thing, isn't it? That north-south divide sometimes. And um, I've got a lot of lovely friends from the south. But I think for people who've never really been to the northeast, they have a very limited um, snapshot of what it is, you know. Um, and so it's all kind of jokes about outdoor toilets and, oh, uh, down <laughs> oh, in the pit yes. and all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you've never been further north than the Watford Gap, then it's kind of difficult Um you know to understand so what what i thought was look how about 
let's buck the trend because it always seems to be that people from the north have to move south in order to seek their opportunities and that's very much the kind of narrative that we hear a lot of um, and I thought well how about you've got a very privileged southern man um, who decides of his own volition that actually really he's not suited to the life that he's been born into and he seeks something different although at the time perhaps he doesn't really understand what he's seeking but I think he's seeking to broaden his horizons um, and to broaden his mind um, and perhaps uh, you know it's about finding one's place in the world that is more about the people that he's with as opposed to actually the geography although we love the geography <laughs> so um so you know that was very much i wanted it to to be someone from the south deliberately moving north not because they had to but because they wanted to um and then finding his place in the world up here well yeah i, I mean we we related to that because we discovered your books when we were living down in warwickshire and i was teaching in oxford um mm -hmm. and um, we definitely felt we we were a long way pull, away from home, it? and it was yeah, it was part of the pull to come when we were reading all these things. So I, I also remember when you think about the north south divide. My mum tells the story of uh, some family friends of ours that live in Kent, and her mother in the nineties was amazed that we had Marks and Spencers up north. Um, <laughs> wait, <laughs> so you till, have, wait till yeah. you tell her about waitress. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So well, so I wondered. Um, are there any particular, for us, when we lived away, as soon as we would come back up north, half-term holidays, because we're both teachers, we would go and do, you know, Walkworth and um, Annick, and we would be visiting Holy Island. And, and since we moved tourists. back up north, we've kind of tried to live almost like tourists in our own homeland again. Are there any things about the north like that you held really dear to you when you lived away that you deliberately kind of put into the books now through some of the characters? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, so many things, it kind of leaks out. Um, I think probably the character of Phillips is the most obvious one to talk about because he is probably the only one who is um, most directly based on a real character. Um, although, obviously, with some characters, I, I have viciously killed people off who've been rude. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, no, no. Oh, I just kidding. <laughs> but with uh, Phillips, uh, he was based on my late, late and great grandfather. Um, mm. So, you know, he, his humour, his sort of um, irreverence, his self-deprecating manner, his warmth, compassion, all of that yeah, wound up together. And actually what's really nice, and I will say, is that with him being my grandfather, a lot of that passed on through my mum as well, who then comes out with one-liners, brilliant one-liners, just out of the blue she's just to put it in context she's a very softly spoken polite lady who then will come out with a frankism you know out of the book and <laughs> um, I honestly I've started noting it down because I just think I've got to try and work that in so it's kind of a generational frankism that works its way down um so that's that's lovely and that's what I um really took and take uh, a lot of pleasure in writing that character because his character is so much wound up with the Northeast. I mean, his family, he was born, um, you know, down by the docks in Newcastle, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. you know, sh shipbuilding territory, um, very much so in the heart of uh, the city there. So um, that's the first thing. But secondly, I mean, you know, I mean, we set up a, a photography prize, the Northern Photography Prize, and that was um, to celebrate two different things people and places of the northeast so the um the heart of the northeast and uh, i think that's kind of very much what i wanted to put through the books as well um it's not just 
everything that you see it's it's not just the history that sort of wound into the landscape it's the people who who surround it and who kind of embody it you know and so that's what I held on to when I was living away and so when I came back I was like you definitely you know very much a tourist rushing back to see all of the places that I loved as a kid and obviously having my own children now you can rediscover them so we went mm-hmm. to bear, hunt, bear hunts in Kielder and when I was oh, writing yes. all, yeah <laughs> researching dark skies that was a really nice time of course obviously um <laughs> you could tell that I was a tourist because I was not wearing the right shoes for that for that walk um so I obviously then wrote that in with Ryan you know in his uh, silly suede shoes that he shouldn't have been wearing on um, Adrian's wall but that was very much me um because you know I hadn't invested in a proper pair of walking shoes <laughs> um, yeah but you know it, there's so much to it I mean we're very very fortunate in this part of the world I think one of the things that we were quite um, aware of was coming back north, but not taking it for granted anymore. It's it's yeah. one of those tropes, you know, you don't really know what you've got until it's gone. Um, and we really yeah. did miss it. And that's why we did make such a point of visiting those places. But we were in Bamburgh just last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we love the drive up there. When you see the castle appear, it, it mm. never gets old, mm-hmm. that view. And you just, I do wonder if there are people who live in the village who wake up every morning, you know, they leave the house to go to work and the Don't castle's just there. <laughs> They're used to it. You know, I, I I can't quite understand how you could take a view like that for granted, but I'm sure people do. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean. It's one of those places, isn't it, where it's just so... Um, I know, obviously, I'm by no means the first writer of Bernard Cornwell. Um, you know, talking, you can see how it's really to write about vast epic stories because it is an epic i mean the sea as well is um a silent hero in all of it because yes there's the the bricks and mortar and it looks incredible sitting on top of that kind of craggy mount and then looking out to holy island i mean that's that's a one and the sea in between it you know it's such a kind of raging torrent you think about all of the kind of skeleton ships beneath there which is why i really enjoyed writing longstone as well Um, yeah well i wanted to ask about that yes Mm because that's quite a different when we talk about different cultures that exist within northumberland there there are whole ways of life in northumberland that exist long before most of us get out of bed in the morning and i think longstone was a great example of finding a totally different way of life the fishing village way of life that exists and yeah. turning that into a book and also making it read like Cabot Cove in, in Murder, She Wrote, which was great for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but was that another... Africa. Exactly. I brought up on those on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> um, was was that deliberate to kind of go and do a bit of extra research about that life and, and that, you know, village? Yeah, I mean, one of the... Actually, I won't say it's, it's not a problem as such, but one of um, the biggest sort of setbacks in research is actually delving into it too much because if you think about the average length of a novel is between 80,000 and 120,000 words mm. on the longer side um you know and if you're wanting to write a pacey page turning novel which I tend to um a lot of the research that I do I end up having to leave at the side and you have to really pick and choose because you know otherwise you're just writing a, a kind of a non-fiction book <laughs> you know, you're yes really yeah. um and you know when you think about say Longstone um just a discussion of life on the farms, even with the rangers or, you know, um, 
that's that's a whole book in itself or yeah. a secondary book talking about shipwreck diving i mean that's another book you know <laughs> so it's and then trying to combine those two plus life in the village as you say into one book um and then obviously don't get me started on living as a lifeguard you know so yeah, yeah there are <laughs> There are lots and lots of different strands and each of them is worthy of its own kind of tome. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of the, the the skill which gets easier over time. I mean, as I say, along to I think this one book, I want to say book nine, I could be wrong. <laughs> Someone will correct me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get to a point of, you know, age where you can't remember. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, at that point you're starting to get into the swing of things and it becomes much more practiced skill at being able to kind of draw from your research what you want to put in and and what you want you need to leave behind them but I would say yeah it's it's a it's an ongoing issue I, I get drawn into the history and drawn into all of the kind of cultures as you say because they're fascinating you know and I, I know that with my new series the Reavers I'm, I've absolutely fallen down a hole with um, the historical research there so <laughs> I was about um, to ask about that as well. I was, we've, I've got a note here on the paper in front of me that said Border Reavers, and I was just tapping it there as you said that about <laughs> history because I, won- I wondered, one of the questions I wanted to ask was, you know, I, I didn't know a huge amount about Reaver history until I visited the Cresswell Peel Tower recently and, and mm-hmm. was given a, a bit of a crash course on, on Reaver history. And I yeah. thought, is it a totally different approach to writing? You know, di- did you start off from a different place in wanting to write those books? Is it different researching them? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think uh, probably if uh, someone in publishing would ask me where would they sit on a shelf, that's a classic publishing question, <laughs> um, which I consistently avoid. Um, but <laughs> I think it would be kind of a historical drama, I suppose. But really what I would say is that um, I've taken the approach uh, that Winston Graham took, which is to write about a fictional character that sits alongside existing history. Mm-hmm. So he wrote Poldark and then was able to discuss all of the kind of things that were happening in Cornwall around that time um, and have it be believable and authentic because those things were actually happening. You know? And so that's, I think, probably um, the best approach to take, which is, um, you know, to take a fictional family, follow their ups and downs over the course of probably 10 to 15 years, um, and then around that, you see some major, major points in history um, and their interaction with it and some of the big riding families at the time. Um, and that's, of course, another thing that so many families in the Northeast are still. Um, yes, they have a long heritage. So yeah. I had about 300 emails from excited Reaver family surnames saying, can't <laughs> wait to read it. I'm an Armstrong from you know, yeah, Canada. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, my Lord, I was thinking, <laughs> no, sure one of them is going to be a baddie, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's always funny kind of getting those emails. So it's, it's actually, it's really exciting embarking on a new series. Um, did again, you find some new just... historical moments in, you know, in your research? Did you find some interesting facts about Northern history there then that you thought, oh, I didn't know that. And that's interesting. Oh, gosh, so many. Um, I mean, I think probably... The, the sad thing about it is actually so many of um, the places where they lived would probably be just ruins now. Um, mm-hmm, we have some, mm-hmm. as you say, Cresswell Tower is still there, which is great. Um, but I think, you know, the thing to wrap my head around with the reading um, history is that unlike when you think of other battles where it was just one side against another, there was quite a lot of chop and change at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it was quite a lot of well this week we're fighting for such and such but next week we would easily turn to this and it was yeah. more a question it was more a story of survival um it strikes me that living in quite rural landscape and beautiful for us now um to visit you know in north northumberland and across the border regions mm. but you know quite quite tough terrain to survive in um pretty cold i should imagine <laughs> so you know um the kind of person and trying to get your head as a writer into um, the psychology of the sort of person who lives as a border reader and understanding that um i guess violence and and also uh, fear uh, on the other side because what you did unto others could easily be done to you you know so it was very much a sort of um a time i think of discord but it was also very much in in the character of those families it was how they made their way you know Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so so yeah i think individual stories like that have been interesting you've got like big johnny armstrong and you know all of these different yes um, yes sort of uh characters who you know a great inspiration for people that i'm going to write about in my book but there must have been so many that weren't written as well. That's what I love to oh, think Oh, definitely, of. yes. I love to but, think of the ones that didn't quite make it to the Chronicle, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's plenty, plenty space to squeeze characters into that history, I think, yeah. <laughs> well, that brings me on quite nicely um, to something I did want to ask about. I think in terms of um, characters, which, as you've said, your readership do genuinely fall in love with, they do become part of an extended family. Um, <laughs> characters, location, and now further back in history, I feel like there is quite a diversity in terms of who and what is represented in our county is that something that you are um conscious of as you're working or yeah definitely um you know i think particularly um well actually over the years yeah there's been quite a lot of back and forth i mean when i think back to um you know let's say the early noughties when i was 17 i remember volunteering um as an english tutor and it was um, for Kosovan refugees, we've always been a welcoming people, you know, mm. and I think that when you live in the north of England historically, um, you know, on the border with Scotland, it's not just that you needed to be hardy, you know, with the, the weather and with all of the kind <laughs> of life up here. Um, I think that you also needed to be accepting. Um, and I think that that's where our kind of understanding and our history has come from, that, um, you know, we're we're very open-armed um we're friendly but we also are no-nonsense kind of people so oh yeah <laughs> that reminds you know, me I of say, I think that, yeah there's a paragraph <laughs> towards the end of Cragside there I was just glancing at last night where Phillips is describing the hardy northerners and how you know <laughs> communities pull together and they recover and they don't dwell on the past yeah I think that's true and I think because you know um I think it's again it's, it comes back to that question of survival at its base you know people People just want to, to make the best of it. And there is a natural optimism, which I, I really admire in the people of the Northeast. And I don't think that's unique to the people of the Northeast, actually, in fairness. I think that most people, when given the chance, want they want to see the best mm. in others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I can only speak from you know my own heritage, so that's in the prism of talking about the Northeast, but I know that it would exist elsewhere as well. Um, but particularly in the Northeast, as you say, that diversity... I think it comes from, you know, generationally having, you know, people come down from Scotland, come across from Ireland, come across from Denmark and, you know, all over the place. And there's a lot of history wrapped up in the people who make up the populace today. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I say, very, very welcoming. So in the books, I do try to reflect that. I think also, though, um, you know, in terms of forgotten communities, um, that's, you know, brings brings us back around to the rock, for example, and that there are undercurrents and underbellies to, you know, every major town, every city, you know, there's always that sort of side to life. Um, and, you know, with the books that I write, what I like to do is maybe explore the topic, but then I have um, the benefit of being able to write, let's say, a, a happier ending that might then might sometimes be the case in reality. And, you know, as a former lawyer, I can attest to that. You know, I, I used to uh, prosecute fraud and do white collar crime. Uh, you know, you couldn't bring them in every time. So mm-hmm. that was frustrating to me in the real world. So, you know, writing about crime in uh, the fictional world, at least, you know, I'm, I'm able to write uh, a resolution for people at the end, which is really gratifying. <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> yeah. They can get their comeuppance in a book like that. That's right. So thinking about your Northern heritage, Louise, have you got any yeah. traditions rooted within it that you'd perhaps like to share with the listeners as the podcast really is about celebrating, um, you know, the recent past as well as the present? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that we are, I mean, we're not, we're not a religious family, first of all. So um, that is something I should say, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a religious person. But in terms of um, general, general things about the Northeast, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't know whether you count it as traditions, but, you know, I've always used to like to go down to um, the fish key for my fish supper. And, oh, yeah. You know, we always <laughs> used to like to, you know, it's, um, I mean, the amount of times that I just randomly sing fog on the tiny around the house. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's so much a tradition, but <laughs> but it's definitely something that we do. Um, I mean, we obviously, as a tradition, watch a Catherine Christian um, adaptation every Christmas. <laughs> um, so I was brought up on it. So, you know, we amongst ourselves me and my sister I, I mean honestly it's like a subculture or a conversation because I don't I don't know that anyone else who wasn't from the northeast would understand it yeah. <laughs> but um we come out with things like um <laughs> e tilly <laughs> this, you know, from from the Catherine kicks and adaptations because we love them but you know she's another author who I really admired and I think that she also managed to capture um a certain moment in the history of the landscape as well and a certain character you know um and I think that's why they've, they've stood the test of time so well as well it's so oh, funny yeah. because on that note you know um the actor Owen Teal who was in uh the 15 streets many years ago uh, shame on anyone who doesn't remember this adaptation <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so he, he was another the younger man but then while I was uh, years later I happened to be in an audible studio um, having uh, my book, The Infirmary, recorded by a multitask of people, including Kevin Waitley and Alan Armstrong, which yeah. was lovely. Anyway, was I was in- that, I have to yeah, oh, thank you. Well, I was invited along to obviously listen to some of um, the recording, and one of the greatest joys will always be remembering Kevin Waitley read out one of my lines, Had Away in Shine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but I, in a, during the break, I was sitting in a room and they had these kind of glass offices because it's all very fancy. And I looked through and I looked across and I just paused and I thought to myself, I'm sure that's Owen Teal. And I just said, honestly, it was, I was so fan struck and it was purely yeah. because of that Captain Fixon moment. <laughs> oh, so, so, yeah, um, lots of things like that. I think it's more, I wouldn't, I, I'm, to be honest with you, there's so many. I kind of, 
<laughs> I gotta lose track. I think I, I wouldn't say that I'm somebody who um, you know I see a magpie and think, "Ooh, that's for this or that." I don't. I don't yeah. think that. I know that there are many, many uh, sort of local superstitions and things like that. As I say, I wouldn't say I was particularly superstitious or religious, but um, I certainly have my habits um, that you know I've done as, as since being a child, and now I do with my children. And, you know, where we go and um, going along to the market in time out and, you know, yeah. lots of things that we really love to do as a family and, and kind of circuit the northeast. So, yeah. Well, in the last few days, we took our little boy to the Angel of the North for the first time. Oh, yeah. um, it, it always made us smile because when we did do those really long drives back up home on a half term holiday, mm-hmm. you never really felt like you were in the north until you until drove past the angel. And I think we would always wave, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Always say, I'm we're home. <laughs> We've got another <laughs> 20 minutes in the car, but we're home. Yeah, you could play Jimmy Neal's Big River yeah. <laughs> on the CD player once oh, we got that far. <laughs> oh, my heart, that song, honestly. And yeah. that was pretty much every time, wasn't it? It was. Um, it's funny. I mean, no, ca- carry on. <laughs> no, I was no, just no. going to say the angel is um, such an interesting one in terms of the readership because whenever I put a picture up, you know, people from the north, um, a lot of them remember when it was erected. So, you know, you it, I think it's two minds, isn't it? You either really like kind of modern art or you don't, um, or modern sculpture in this case. I have grown to love it because it's iconic. You know, I just think it's, it is, it's so striking. And I think it really kind of reflects um the you know slight industrial history to the to the area mm-hmm. as well so yeah, yeah i think it is i think it's very striking and i happen to love it but i know that some people <laughs> yeah but, yeah i do remember the controversy when they when they first put it up um i do yeah. remember that but it is some and it is something that i certainly think when i was younger i didn't appreciate it's living yeah. away and coming back and recognizing it for what it becomes as a symbol i think that does that for you yeah yeah definitely Uh, So one of the earlier podcast episodes has been about local dialect and forgotten words. Mm -hmm. And I know you you almost touched on this earlier when you were talking about your grandfather. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of the humour in the DCI Ryan books come between that dynamic between Phillips and Ryan. You know, Mm -hmm. Ryan's sheer confusion um, (laughs) at the colloquialisms and that Phillips regularly has to translate for him. So have you any fond colloquialisms of your own from the North? Um, I think netty is always a good one. Yes, <laughs> especially when you, especially when you're down south, you say everybody netty. Yeah. So you look at you say sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking for the lavatory, darling. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's funny. Um, things like that. Raji, we say, oh, he's a bit of a raji. People are like, yeah. yeah, that came up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so many of them. My goodness. Um, so I, I think I try to, I mean, yeah, I try to weave it in just a little bit, but it's, it's a great kind of mechanism having, again, what you're talking about, having someone who is from a different part of the country, absolutely no idea about that kind of local dialect whatsoever. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, I will get to the stage where Phillips just starts winding him up and making up new things. You know, it's just not, <laughs> they're not even real words, just, <laughs> just designed to bamboozle him. Um, yeah. Do you yeah. find yourself giggling at the computer sometimes when you put, you know, when you're typing that kind of dialogue between those two characters in? Do, do you hear, oh, yeah. you know, people's voices in your head and start giggling? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, the best thing, though, is when I, I give the manuscript to read um, 
uh, to my husband to read because uh, he's mm. he's not from the northeastern south. He was born down south and then um, grew up in a village outside of Edinburgh, um, oh, which nice. is not not all that far away. But it's still he's you know he's more of an adopted northeasterner, so yeah. <laughs> he's a little bit of a Ryan character himself. So when I hear him reading that dialogue and having a little chuckle, then I know that it's working. You've so, got it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, is there anything um, that you'd like to, um, I suppose, say about the future of, of, of the books before we go? Is there a, are there any things coming up on the horizon for the stories that you're particularly excited about? Oh, well, um, I think, I, you know, on the Ryan stories, the next, um, the next one in the series will be Ladies Well. So there'll mm-hmm. be um, an imminent announcement about that probably at the beginning of May. Um, I know that other readers are waiting, waiting for the um, paperback version of Bamber's coming out at the end of this month. Oh, um, and we're just waiting for audio. And on the Gregory books, obviously, we've got the lovely Richard Armitage is still um, narrating the audio books on those. Um, and there'll be two more books at least in that series coming, which I'm, you know, uh, working away on at the moment. So <laughs> And then um, we've got the next big summer suspense novel for anyone who enjoys uh, being transported to Cornwall is um, going to be The Creek, which is, uh, those books are very much about kind of strong female characters who are seeking uh, new lives and have, you know, for whatever reason are changing their lives, you know, and uh, finding new communities and new friends. So it's, it should be a warm hearted read for people as well in the summer. So, yeah, um, busy, busy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, very, <laughs> very busy. And, and, you know, you've, you've got a, a very small child in the house as well. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I just don't. I'm a night owl, thank goodness, because otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to us. It's we really fantastic. do appreciate that. Um, yeah, we will be editing and, and, and putting the podcast out over the next week or so. So I will, I will tag you in all sorts of bits so you know that it's out there. Um, but thank you very much and enjoy well, the rest of you. the few days with your family. You too. All the best to you. Right. Take you care now. Take bye-bye care. now. Bye-bye. Well, I hope that was as much of a treat for you to listen to um, as it was for us to record. It really was great to be able to do that. Um, it's it's a fantastic opportunity for us um, that the podcast has afforded us to talk to somebody like Louise. Um, what what stands out from that interview for you then? I think that I just really appreciated that despite how nervous I was, um, because I'm not a podcaster, I am a VIP guest. Um, not as VIP as LJ Ross, obviously, but <laughs> there you go. Um, I was a little bit nervous about interviewing her because as I said I am a fan however she was so um natural in her conversation with us mm-hmm. um you know it wasn't it wasn't as formal as I was expecting it was actually quite a free-flowing conversation almost as if it wasn't the first time that we'd properly sat down to speak to her so I think I just really enjoyed actually um the entire conversation it felt like talking to a friend it did. It was really good. I think what's always the danger when you interview somebody that, um, in a, in a sense, has a product is that it feels like you, they're just waiting to drop sentences in to plug the new book or the new TV series or the new whatever. Actually, it didn't feel like that for one second during the interview. Um, it was really nice to talk to her. And like you say, rather than the interview, felt just like a conversation. And I hope that came across. Um, I will uh, I will plug the new book for her, actually, because... Um, 
Bambra is out on Kindle now. Yep. And then when All this episode goes out, it'll be on paperback. paperback. The day that this episode goes out, it'll be out on paperback. And obviously you've got an entire back catalogue of books to read if you haven't read them already. They're fantastic. And I know my friend Ross, Coast Radio's uh, Midweek Meltdown, Rossi, he's just started reading Holy Island this week. I mean, hopefully by the time he hears this, he's on about book 10. That's the idea. Easily done. <laughs> it is. It is. Good Once you're into that world, you're in. Okay. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We've got loads of special episodes lined up on the podcast over the next few um, weeks. There's um, a special episode in which I'm talking to someone who is um, behind the scenes on the Durham 2025 bid for City of Culture. That is uh, that came out of the blue, really, and is a really fascinating um, interview, and I, I, I really enjoyed doing that. So that'll be out for you to listen to soon, and then series. Five of the podcast is already in the works we're in the planning stages and um, a few other things have cropped up that i think are going to be really good in series five and some potential special episodes after series five as well going to have more from hawthorne road i talked to nick a few more times i think because that's brilliant interview we did with her if you haven't heard it go back and check that episode out about a life on hawthorne road but also examining the photographs she has from generations in in that street and um, I'm hoping to talk to a really interesting guy called Ralph, who I've just spoken to this week, um, who's in his 80s and has phenomenal memories of not only his history in Ashington, but also his parents' history. And we are talking first generation Ashington when, you know, the, 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 the mines were first sinking. It's, it's, it's going to be brilliant. So I'm really looking forward to interviewing Ralph and getting a few, a few episodes out of his stories, I think. All right, that's a long special episode, totally worthwhile being a long episode. Thanks again to Louise for taking the time to talk to us. Really appreciate that and look forward to talking to all of you lot again very, very soon. Goodbye, stay safe, stay well. <laughs>